Back on Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where we're learning together how to live in the age of Christian fulfillment. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and let's begin with the word of prayer. Father, we seek you and love you. We need you in our lives, and we recognize your hand, um, even though we cannot comprehend what that means and how that actually works. Uh, but we try to uh, be grateful for the love you bestow upon us and the, and the, uh, and the care and the consideration that uh, that you have for us human beings we uh we pray for the world we pray for seth and and wendy and we pray for the program right now in uh, jesus name amen 20 years ago this morning i was sitting in my office overlooking the park city mountain resorts and my phone rang and it was a surprise call from a family friend john living in southern california at that time and he told me that my older brother, Jeff, 44 years old, was dead. The news was as shocking as a, my brother was a healthy, uh, accomplished family man of five. And I was taken, I was given the task from John of calling and telling my parents. And so I listened long distance over the phone as their world came crashing down completely around them. Uh, they had six children. This was the first and only one who had passed. Several years ago, I got another telephone call from my oldest daughter when she lived in Sweden. And she was cleaning her house uh, for a few days rigorously. And suddenly her wrist blew, ballooned up uh, two to three times its size, something that had never happened before. And she went to the doctor and was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis which means a lifetime of pain and also the ingestion of a destructive medicines to keep her bones and joints as healthy as possible. Like many of you, uh, I have also watched very healthy people suffer and die from cancer uh, that appears to spring up out of the blue. I have known vibrant, uh, uh, dang it, this, this thing isn't working. I have known of um, several of vibrant, giggling babies who have drowned in the backyard pool. And I have personally experienced, like everybody does, the pain of tooth decay and broken limbs and even sexual abuse uh, from others when I was a young age. Why? The statistics on worldwide suffering are virtually incomprehensible if you've ever looked at them. Homelessness, addiction, crime of every flavor, disease, abuse, loneliness, racism, unrest, cold, mean, hollow treatment of all living things, mental and emotional issues, rashes, abrasions, pox, acne, infections, hunger, starvation, and accidents of every kind imaginable. Suffering, pain. Who, why, God? Where is he in all of this? Especially if he is a living and supposedly a loving, benevolent God. In my years of public ministry, I have engaged with a number of people who cannot believe in or receive God by faith based on the realities of world suffering. Now, I just want to stop really quickly and point out many people live in such isolation and in their own world 
they don't really realize the suffering that's out there. Uh, you know, we could pick on people who live in happy little valleys, but if you travel outside of some of these valleys and you go to third world nations, or you even just go into some of the city slums of our own country, and even some of the small towns, you will find some of this suffering uh, all around those people. Did you know that 550,000 women plus die every year in childbirth? Childbirth alone, 550,000 women plus every year. Did you know that 37,000 children every under the age of five years old die every day in this world? Mostly from five diseases that are easily cured. Measles, diarrhea, malaria, pneumonia, and malnutrition. 37,000. And isn't it really amazing that I haven't even talked about suicides or homicides or war or rapes or abduction or poverty or stress or warfare or alienation from society in general because you're different? So let's begin right here at this point. Suffering, incomprehensible suffering is ubiquitous and is definitely part of the human experience. It has reigned for thousands of years and more and it escapes none. There's no age group, race, culture, or person that ex is exempt from suffering in some degree or another, to some degree or another. So that's the first point. Suffering is. That's the first point. I'm not a Buddhist. I know that's one of the first principles that uh, Gautama heard under the bow tree, but uh, suffering is a reality. Secondly, we have to admit that some of us suffer far, far more than others. And to add to the incomprehensibility of it, some of us much, much less. But the reality is all of us will suffer in some fashion or another over the course of life that Christians believe and Muslims believe and Jews believe that God has given them. I went to the dentist the other day with my two grandsons and their mother and watched as the staff was working on giving them x-rays and cleanings. And the younger of the two, he's seven, he's not accustomed to infiltration of his body of any kind. And he would have nothing to do with them sticking their fingers in his mouth. And a battle ensued and they were doing all they could to try to help protect his back six-year-old molars and to clean his teeth and seal them. Uh, but he resisted all the way with fighting, screaming, kicking, crying. And watching this, I wondered, why? Why the struggle? Why the pain? Why the discomfort? The dentist came in and suggested applying a sealer to both of the boys' molars. And I wondered, why didn't God seal their molars when they were born? How come he doesn't seal our teeth when they come in? Why do we have to go to a dentist to have our teeth sealed so that they don't get decayed, so that we don't have to get fillings? 
And down the cerebral slope, I sort of allowed myself to go. Why do we need glasses? Eyeglasses. Why do children need them? Hearing aids. Pacemakers to keep our hearts beating right. Cramps from menstrual cycles. A few years ago, my mom had some emergency heart stents put in her heart that was failing quickly. And it was an emergency operation. And they put them in and it saved her life. Hooray for modern science, we say. Hoorah, good job. But since that time, her body has completely deteriorated with arthritis. She's in her early 80s. And her, she's unable to move without the aid of a walker. And I'm telling you, to go this far takes her five minutes. And it's all pain. In two years, she has become completely incapacitated. Why not replace her hips and knees? The stents in her heart put her at too much risk. The stents won't allow it. So she can't have those things replaced. So the heart operation that we did to save her life actually saved her to a life of utter pain. Why? Pain meds aren't an answer. They only give her so many. And she's not even a complainer. Couldn't have God given us joints that would last? I mean, if he's omniscient and omnipresent, couldn't he have seen that in the year 2000 that we would be eating things like fries and burgers and Diet Cokes and candy and that our joints needed to be resilient against that stuff and that we wouldn't really understand and, and he would have fixed it for us? Eyes and ears that would last, societies that would love, hearts and minds and hands that always work. Couldn't he have given our bodies defenses against all kinds of cancers? In the abstract, yeah, God could have, you know. But in the reality of things, I think we must rejoice in the fact that he didn't. I think it's important for all of us to hear the arguments and complaints against God for failing to equip us and which typically lead to a refusal to receive him by faith in some people's minds. I can't believe in a God who allows this kind of suffering, they will say. And they write songs about it and they, and they mock religious people for believing in a God who would allow such things to go on in his creation. Why didn't he just fix it if he's so great, right? Let's run through some things to think about relative to God and suffering that might equip us with a little bit better of an understanding. And I think it's important to begin by reminding ourselves that we as believers walk by faith. And we do not walk by our understanding nor our comprehension of things. And this is anathema to the world outside of us. Um, if we uh, assent to the notion that there is a God and that his ways are higher and unknown to us, the natural conclusion to this nascent belief is that we trust in him to be loving and good and benevolent. And therefore, what he allows have re has a reason. That's part of our faith. That if there's suffering, and there is, as we talked about, since there's suffering, we have to decide how do, we, how do we approach suffering in the lives of others and in ourselves with God. 
And a Christian, I think, has to say there must be a reason. And the reason must be good, not evil, not bad, not a failure of an of a, of a inept God, but part of what he is and what he wants. Simple as that. There's no way possible to explain to a humanist why children or anyone really suffers with cancer and dies. It's, you just can't do it. The worldview, their worldview is not ours. So we ought to stop trying to explain it. And at the forefront, just admit, I believe in the ways of the Lord God Almighty. If that's not sufficient for you, I'm sorry. I love you. I know you don't want to embrace God for those reasons. I can't tell you anything about it, really. I can postulate. But in the end, I believe. And I believe he has a reason. Because our world does not fit the Christian, Muslim, and Jewish view of God, of the, of God as benevolent, um, just, omnipotent, omnipresent, does not mean that he isn't. It just means the world doesn't see him as that. Hand in hand with the assessment of God and his ways being just and good for a reason, we might add in what we call possessing the long view. Our perspective is so supremely limited. You know, I just talked about people suffering and how in certain valleys of the world, some people live in such uh, idyllic uh, states, they don't realize that there's the suffering that world travelers see, right? And... Um, that's, it, Christians got to have the long view. They got to see beyond the right here and now. Our perspective so limited, but in the hands of a Lord God Almighty, the perspective is long and comprehensive, right? So we see a person suffering. He sees the temporary nature of that and the value of the experience that comes to others over the course of human history somehow. Some way. The commitment to faith is shrouded in a daily decision of humility before our maker. A trait many will not choose to assign themselves in this life toward God. They will shake the fist. They'll say they know better. They could have done better than God has. Like it or not, they go hand in hand. So, sure, we can say we reject faith and we can maintain the chutzpah to shake a fist at God for what he allows, but Christians, I think, should unapologetically admit to faith and humility before our Maker, even if those approaches wind up being mocked. The argument against God because of the suffering in this world usually begin with descriptions Christians assign to him, like he's sovereign. That means his will is always done. Christians say this. That he's omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. I used some of these words earlier. He's omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere, and he's omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. Those, those four words that Christians throw around, right? Then propping God up with these characteristics, people in the face of suffering tear him and his existence down. They say the Christian God is sovereign. 
They say he's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. If he's all those things, he's a failure, right? Going all the way back to 33 AD, there's a Greek philosopher named Epicurus. And Epicurus said, is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence comes evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? The logic that you hear on, on, on message boards and on Facebook today by atheists and, and, and humanists about God, that's nothing new. That goes back to 33 AD. Epicurus, the, the Greek philosopher. People like George Carl, uh, Carlin, the comedian, and others have hijacked that sentiment. But I want to address it from the source. I'm not going to quote Carlin. I want to go to the source of Epicurus. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent, he says. God is not willing to prevent evil, I would suggest, but has all the power to overcome its effects in the lives of those seeking him. I think that's a simple response, and I think it's true. He's not willing to prevent evil, but he's willing to be there to help you deal with the outcome of it. Simple as that. Epicurus says, is he able, but not willing? What I just said. Then he's malevolent. That means he's bad. He's evil. He's not benevolent. He's malevolent. His unwillingness to stop evil is out of a love for freedom of choice among creations made in his image. That's not malevolence. That's goodness. That's love, not malevolence, not a failure. That's goodness. Epicurus, is he both willing and able to stop it? Then whence comes evil? Where does evil come from? If he's both able and willing to stop it. He is neither able or nor willing for the reasons posted above, but evil is the result of the absence of him of darkness reigning over light. Evil is a byproduct of him being. Where you have light, there will be shadow. Scripture says there's no shadow in him, but the very presence of him creates somehow a darkness. Epicurus ends with, is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And herein comes the rub between believers in the true and living God and those who reject him and his ways. We call him God because he is good and benevolent and as such allows for pain, suffering, disaster, and sorrow. To refuse to allow such, to refuse to allow such, and to interfere with the free will choices of humanity would make him despotic which would make him evil. And it is in the face of sorrow and suffering that we call him God, Epicurus. It's in the face of the sorrow and suffering that we call him God. His goodness is manifest in freedom. And in freedom, there's always displays of suffering and pain and sorrow. It, it was interesting when you looked at the the uh, Berlin Wall 
that was uh, all around Berlin after the Second World War that they put up to keep the, the Germans in uh, Berlin and the East German and West German. And on, in East Germany, on the East German side, the wall was clean as a, you could eat your dinner off it. And it was completely immaculate. There's no freedom there. On the west side of the wall, it was absolutely graffitied and marred and, and everything else happens to that wall. Why? Because there is freedom there. There's always going to be problems where there's freedom. You want a God who doesn't allow you to be free? Then you want a despot. So when you meet somebody who says, God should have done this, you're talking about somebody, if they were let out on the leash with their full ability they would become a totalitarian and they would begin to act in God's name upon people and take away freedom. You see, the man-made God of imperialistic sovereignty promoted by Calvin and backed by non-biblical words like omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, paint an errant picture of our God, a very errant picture of him. God is love. True agape Love is manifested at times in and through painful ways and expressions which exist in environs of freedom and liberty. There's no real opportunity to love where there's no real opportunity to freely choose. How can you really love if you can't freely choose? And the command from Jesus is to love. So you have to have the choice. And with choice comes suffering. And so why suffering in the end? Free will, freedom, a good God. That's why. The free will of the parents of the human race, Adam and Eve, the free will of every parent thereafter and the way they do raise their kids, act, the free will of our politicians and our popes, the free will of every single one of us who choose light and love and life, or those who in our midst decide with their will to choose death and despair and destruction. For him to stop such evil would mean the demand for us uh, to love would end. He would stop the evil through his power, but we would lose the capacity to choose and love. Another argument against God because of suffering in the world is that since he is all-knowing, why on earth would he create us in the first place? Full well knowing what we would experience on this earth with the decisions of others. It goes back to everything I just said, but I want to reel this back into the boat and point out that it's funny. This world is filled with people who do the very same thing every day of the week. They know a couple before they conceive a child, this kid's gonna have his teeth drilled. This kid could break a leg. This child could get cancer. He could be kidnapped, she could be raped. And they choose to bring a child into this world. And that's two fallen human beings who make a choice to create and put a human on this earth. And we question God's reasons, which are far, far above when everybody around us is doing that with families. There's something about 
giving life, creating life, that is superior to the risks that come with having life. God is all about that. He creates because he's a creator and he's good. And he knew, yes, the fallout. But as we said with the first point, the fallout must be worth it because he's a good God, not a bad one. I realize we are not all-knowing as human beings and that the argument is God is all-knowing. And if you're all-knowing as parents, would you still have children? Well, we're not all-knowing, that's for sure. But we certainly know the... We have gone through most of the, our childhood and teen years as humans knowing the pains that come in, and yet we still choose to do it. We have some idea of what a child is going to go through and yet still have them. But I am guessing that God discovers that there is value, eternal value in the human race. And on that, I trust that by faith, which is the first principle we talked about. I would seriously remind you all that in the perspective of a non-despotic God, a non-reformed theology God, that the relationship between God and people is a two-way street. This is perhaps another reason why God allows pain and suffering in his economy of material life, because he is allowing people to see if they want him in their life to help them with the pain and sorrows of existing here. I think it's important to ask ourselves, forgetting all the ramifications of despotism and the like, is what would our human lives be like if God did not allow suffering to exist? Let's just flip it on its head. You know, why does he allow suffering to exist? Well, imagine this world if there was no suffering and God wasn't despot and he made sure that suffering was gone. There was no pain at all in any way, psychological, mental, physical, whatever. Think about that world for a minute. Would we learn? Treat each other lovingly, drive carefully, brush your teeth. I mean, wouldn't everybody walk around with bad breath? I don't know, but think about it. What if there was no death? Which brings some of the most painful suffering a human can experience when a loved one passes, a spouse, a parent, a child, a sibling, a friend big suffering. But I think we would become the most indifferent, self-absorbed, selfish creatures to ever exist if there wasn't pain and suffering. In other words, without pain and suffering, I am not so sure human beings could understand or comprehend empathy, sympathy, how to live responsibly with each other and toward our own person even. And this is the key, the presence of pain and suffering, human beings understand agape love. We understand it. How would we love if nobody ever felt pain? How could, how could we? Would we love our parents and respect them and show them honor if they live forever? We try to be, figure out ways to kill them. 
Will we have any innate ability to be concerned or care for another person at all if there is no pain or suffering? I don't think so. Finally, the presence of suffering and pain also has the capacity to bring people to him. Without it, perhaps this would never be the case. To simplify this, we might see it like a teacher of mathematics. If children understood how to do math, they would never have a need for a teacher who gives them problems to solve. And the pain and problem of suffering has the ability to bring us to the teacher. I cannot figure out how to do this, teacher. What is the way to do this equation, this problem? With no suffering, no difficulty, nothing to overcome, nothing to challenge yourself by, to reflect upon life about, you never go to the teacher. Never go to God. In the end, and I have only scratched the surface, I find the complaints against God due to suffering so shallow, nearsighted, founded on humanist perspectives that lack faith, but are just bloated with human chutzpah. I could do better than he did. I don't think people who say that know what the hell they're talking about. But I think he did. And I think that's why we live in the world that we live in, in part. So listen, I had a wonderful opportunity to be a guest on a podcast called Radio Free Mormon last week. You can see it on our YouTube channel. You could also watch it on the Radio Free Mormon site. And it's about 90 minutes long, but it really summarized most of the things about the ministry in that time. Really grateful for RFM. He's the host. I, can't, I don't know his name because he kind of remains uh, anonymous. Uh, taking the time to talk with me about the ministry. But there's some comments that were written and so I'm just going to read those and we're going to wrap it up. We're not going to open the phone calls tonight and, uh, and we're going to come back next week and read your comments about the past shows for the past few weeks on next, next week live show. But uh, regarding the show on uh, Radio Free Mormon, Kay says, I love Sean. He's the real deal. RFM, Bill Real, Danny, Sean, and Talking to Mormons and Bishop Earl of Ex-Mormon Files have had the largest impact on my journey. I will forever be grateful. I didn't know who John DeLim was until recently. Sean, my deep dive into the Old Testament has left me different than I was before COVID and attended every Sunday. So she comes to campus. I know who this is, I think. I will email Danny and CCU. I hope you will still want me to attend. Of course we want you to attend. We want you to attend whatever you are. What, if you discovered in your series that Jesus wore a pink wig, show up. We want people to attend. How can we learn from each other? If you've discovered these things, let's talk. Bring them out. Well, you know, you know, it's always about that. So she continues, RFM, I donate so much to Sean that you get skunked. I will rectify that by donating to you more. You both have been huge in my world. Sean, thank you for helping me learn that agape love is freeing and fulfilling. You are what you said in this interview, a lovable scoundrel. Yes, I am. Uh, Jim says, RFM, thanks so much for doing this interview. Great closing song that was popular at a different time. Carpenter of Wood and One More Mountain to Climb were good songs as well at that time. I thoroughly enjoyed the podcast and it falls in the healthy category. I guess, I don't know this, but RFM's podcast deal, about, deal with unhealthy religious 
uh, elements in people's lives. So this falls in the healthy category. What an interesting interview. Yes, it really boils down to love. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, RFM. And we talked all about, like we did tonight, and like we will continue to talk about, it's love. And, uh, and you can't overstate that. Paul Douglas, a guy who wrote a great book and we promote it here on the show sometimes, says, great interview. Look up Paul Douglas's name and his book on Mormon thought and manipulation and stuff. Sean's the best. I had a pleasure of having dinner with him and his wife a couple of years ago in Salt Lake City. His honesty is rare and he is really authentic. Well, he only saw me at dinner that night. You know, outside of dinner, I'm really authentic when I'm eating. Um, Rick W. says, Great interview, a lot of depth here. Had not heard of Sean before, his story and messages are great and a great good luck and forth. I'm awarding extra credit for using soteriology in a sentence again. So we talked about soteriology, which is the way people are saved relative to Mormonism and Christianity. Christy says, waking up to see two of my favorite post-Mormons having an hour plus discussion was a joyful surprise. Both you, RFM and Sean have helped me Both of you, RFM and Sean, have helped me immensely in navigating what can be and often is such a twisty, turny, bumpy exit road out of our former religion. I really appreciate you asking Sean about how he felt, realizing a few of his beliefs seem to have gone back full circle to an LDS view. I want to talk about that really quickly because that's kind of an attack that comes at me. And uh, it, it, it only seems like they've become, I've come back to an LDS view. For instance, when I talk about hell not being eternal, the LDS don't have a fiery burning hell. They have an outer darkness and they have a place where you are in torment because of what you failed to do. I don't have, I don't preach those except there's no fiery burning hell because that's been fulfilled. I do believe it once existed. Uh, I don't believe the LDS ever believed it existed. Another one's on the Trinity. And so while I uh, deny the Trinity um, uh, in the way men have concocted it, I certainly don't embrace what Mormonism says about God being a man with a body of flesh and bone and having a son a literal son, and then having a, the Holy Spirit waiting to get a body. So it, there are elements that seem like I have come back, but in reality, if you flesh them out, I, I really haven't. But she sees that there's similarities. She says, I, uh, she says, it's a question I've been curious about, wanted to answer for a while now, so I was very pleased to get a chance to hear his answer. Great interview. Tom Ashby says, from the beginning of this episode, I wondered why RFM was interviewing a Christian evangelical. I was taken in three quarters of the way through in true surprise, I was a believing Mormon for 40 plus years, now a resolute agnostic atheist. However, for the first time in years, a message of faith checked more boxes for me than any other. Sean, if you could match what we know about science to a loving God and Jesus, I would seriously consider it. Unfortunately, I'm not skilled in science. In fact, two, two guys are sitting here in the audience right now uh, of this show who are. And they probably could do that for you. I can't because I don't spend my time studying science and and stuff. But I don't see them as mutually exclusive. I see science as being reflective of the wisdom of God in part. I don't think science is perfect. And I don't think our theology is perfect. But I think God is. So I think both science and our faith speak of him. And and that's why I have no problem merging scientific uh, uh, the scientific scientific method of doing things and thinking with Christianity. I think it's valuable. So anyway, I think there's people out there like that who are equipped in both ways and consider that. Zeke says, 
I thought this for a long time. Sean gets Christianity right. It's a shame he gets shunned by the corporate Christian elites, but pretty much consistent with Jesus' experience and warnings he left for us. Thanks, Zeke. I appreciate that. It's not often. I think I'm reading these in part because it's not often we get compliments. And so like this. And so it's good that there's an audience there that was able to hear me explain myself to RFM and that they resonated to what was said and they get the message better than what our evangelical brothers and sisters typically do. Dave says, I was presently surprised. I had never heard of Sean and expected to get worked up and frustrated, but what I perceived to be typical arrogance of born-agains. Parenthetical reference, RFM's previous interview with the two evangelical guys nearly made my eyes roll out of my head in uh, parenthetical reference. However, it wasn't like that at all. I don't know what Sean is like in his other presentations, and I'm probably not interested enough to look for myself, but this Sean was thoughtful and open. Sean, the views on religion that you express seem healthy. I like it. From what I've read, the sheep and goats parable is one that is likely to have actually been said by Jesus, unlike the others of the gospel and supposed writings of Paul. The only thing I would push back on is a friendly, in a friendly way is your belief in the Bible. The more I read and the more I see it as a book written by and containing the beliefs of men, not God. I agree with the evidence presented by people like Bart Ehrman that some of the books of the Bible are fraudulent and parts of the Gospels are not original content. The New Testament is a hugely interesting book, but not the great fountain of truth. I don't think that the historical Jesus was much like the New Testament claims he was. For the record, I find Buddhism much more compelling than Christianity. Thanks, Sean and RFM, and would be happy to hear more discussion. So to that, I just want to say that, um, uh, again, all I can say is I do find the Bible to be inspiring, and I do find inspired and therefore inspiring, and I do for, uh, do believe it has a consistent message that is historically uh, reliable. I don't believe it's word perfect, and I know there are mistakes. In fact, I just came across a huge one that we're going to be talking about on Sunday, uh, and uh, it's not a mistake; it's an actual forgery. Uh, but I, I, I. And, and I think that we've misinterpreted the use of the Bible in our lives today. And that's why I personally teach that the spirit is primary and the Bible is secondary. They do go hand in hand. Uh, they are both important witnesses, uh, but I don't place the um, emphasis that some of our more zealous King James only as people do on the Bible. Uh, I do think that much of it was inspired, uh, but I don't think all of it. And even Paul admits to that. And so, you know, it's sort of like if you had, and I'm going to use this example later, if you had a dredging machine and you were looking for uh, diamonds, well, that dredging machine has to go through a heck of a lot of earth. And in that, you're going to get out of it topsoil. That's good. So some people read the Bible and they get topsoil. And then you're going to get some uh, rocks out of it that you could use for building uh, uh, cabins. So you're, some people are going to glean stones out of the Bible. And then you're going to get some uh, healthy minerals and some healthy metals. And you're going to get some precious gems. And then you're going to get some gold. And you're going to get some silver. And then ultimately you're going to get diamonds. And, you know, it really comes to the person, their perspective, maybe the spirit within them working on them, their willingness to see and their willingness to hear. All of those things are available, but I think anyone has to agree that the Bible does offer beneficial insights. 
the biggest atheist on the world has to agree that as a literary device, the Bible is very valuable. I mean, I've read some uh, people, old school uh, atheists, who think that the Bible is some of the greatest literature ever written. How could you read Job and not believe that? How could you think it's just a, I mean, so we have such a, 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 an interesting thing that goes on today with people who are against the Bible. They act like the whole thing is just a joke. Even if it's completely made up of men, it's filled with great wisdom. So, which might be that the topsoil dirt I was talking about. I happen to find gold and diamonds in it. You might find topsoil, whatever. That's okay. Uh, that's just my uh, uh, response. And finally, D.L. Rand says, it's not hard to agree that loving one another is the only message we humans need to truly understand if we ever hope to realize anything beyond the brutal existence we experience here. So D.L. Rand says, it's easy to see that loving one another is the message that will save us. That's, that's simple, he seems to be saying. It is also extremely difficult to understand that shining pearl of wisdom, apparently, since we can't seem to establish peace in our own country, let alone globally. But coming to that understanding requires absolutely no scripture whatsoever. In fact, in my experience, more often than not, scripture serves as an impediment to discovering this, this, this simple principle. Okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address that for a second. The Beatles wrote, all you need is love. We talk, have love songs. Everyone talks about love. You're saying, listen, it's obvious that love will fix our problems, but we can't seem to embrace this love. Nobody seems to do it. And so we have these, these fights between ourselves. And, uh, but he says, but coming to this understanding that love will solve our problems requires absolutely no scripture whatsoever. Absolutely true. Sure. No scripture whatsoever. Anybody understands that doing loving things in the sandbox, at school, in life, to your spouse, is, is better for coexistence than non-loving things. And you don't need scripture to prove that. But you said something interesting here. You said... Coming to that understanding requires, uh, no, you said it also is extremely difficult to understand that shining pearl of wisdom, apparently, since we can't seem to establish peace in our own country, let alone globally. And you, and you, I saw your, I saw your hand, so to speak. Not that I've caught you doing something here, but I saw your hand in your presentation. And the problem is, is that the Christian, the Christian view of love which is only accessible in and through scriptural understanding and does not come naturally to people, is the solution where countries and people and neighbors and friends and, and enemies could come together and overcome their differences. So you're saying it's so obvious love is the answer because the Beatles sing of love. You don't need a Bible to know that. I would suggest that may be true, but what you do need the Bible for is to understand what that love looks like and why it looks the way it does and how to incorporate that kind of love into your life, you see. So I wanted to say that in that first paragraph. He says, in addition, I came to embrace that glaring imperative without a savior, guru, or religious dogma. Again, you embraced it, but do you live it? I don't think you can. I don't think you do. 
I think your flesh is too strong. And I would bet that even if you, if you meditate five times a day and turn to the east and do all these things, I believe you will miss the way and import of agape love in your life without Christ in your life operating and you pursuing it through biblical studies. Now, having said that, I also believe that there could be Muslims who have Christ in them and don't know it, or, or Buddhists or other people, and, but someday they will. Nevertheless, if you want to grow in your life in love, the best way appears to be to know who Christ is and study his word and your heart will learn how and what this love looks like and then you'll be able to practice it. So when you say um, that you need, didn't need a savior or a guru or religious dogma to understand you need love, I can, I can agree with that. And he says, and listening to Sean, I, I assume he's fine with that. And I am fine with that because everybody sees and finds and discovers and looks for what they find and, and that's it. Uh, he says, um, that, and then he admits that, and he says, I totally agree with that sentiment. I must admit that when Sean was talking about what a hard time he gets from Calvinists and said something to the effect that there's no such thing as predestination and he should prove it and he could prove it to them using the scriptures, I blew a bit of coffee through my nose due to a reflective guffaw that let loose. Okay, so uh, first of all, he says something to the effect. That's not what I said. What I said is, uh, uh, well, I can't tell you what I said. I can't remember. But I wouldn't say there's no such thing as predestination. Predestination um, from the foundation of the world is talked about in Scripture relative to certain people groups. The Calvinist application of predestination of every believer on earth is what can be proven. And to that point about what can be proven that caused you to blow coffee out of your nose in this surprise guffaw. Um, I reject the idea that we cannot discover truths in the Bible that are foundational. I reject the idea that everything is relative. I believe that human beings will make things relative and that we will have different views, but I reject the idea that says, you can never know the truth about anything when you read the Bible. I, I absolutely will stand uh, on, against that. But it requires a really deep study of the thing beginning to end. And it takes a long time, but I think it's possible. You see, what you're going to say next uh, is going to counter that. He says, I mean, what can't you prove using those things? I have an ex-brother-in-law who is convinced that the earth is flat and ardently claims he can prove it with the Bible. I have no doubt he can prove it, at least to his own satisfaction, the same way everybody proves stuff using scripture. But who cares? Well, I care. I care. I spend my life in trying to show what the Bible says. And I think that is advised by uh, Jesus and advised by God to study, to show yourself approved and to let the word wash you of your former uh, fleshly ways. So we're coming from two different views now. That's come out. And I understand that. I'm not going to debate with you, but I just want to let you know that as a believer, I would suggest the Bible can give us certain truths that are foundational and that they can be proven. 
And I would also suggest that you will learn how to love best by and through the Bible read by the Spirit through Christ than you will on your own osmosis program sitting on a mountaintop and saying, feed me, universe. So uh, that's where I would differ with you on those points. Anyway, he ends up, I enjoyed... Um, he doesn't buy into pouring over ancient texts and buying into any hocus pocus. And you have that right, brother. Our living God has given you that right. I really don't uh, pour over ancient texts and buy into hocus pocus either. Um, I think I'm a little bit different than that. So uh, I just wanted to comment on those eight comments that we got. We are next week going to go and get to your comments from uh, the RFM show, Radio Free Mormon, and the other shows we've done. Keep watching. I can't tell you how much we appreciate your viewership and how much uh, you guys are seeking and challenging and looking. I appreciate the comments that you make because whether they're pro uh, or even against the concepts that I might share, we're at least dialoguing freely, kindly, usually, and, uh, and lovingly. And that means something in this world. And so we're really grateful. We're a small crew, maybe a thousand of people, people who are just really into it. But in this world, to have a thousand people who are into what you're talking about, uh, that's worth a lot. And so I'm really grateful for all of you, grateful for Seth and Wendy, and uh, pray God's blessings upon you until next week here on Heart of the Matter.